Maybe you've noticed when you enter into the Dhamma Hall through the front doors that there are these cast bronze door handles and perhaps you wondered what they symbolize and they're not just a nice piece of art, they, they do symbolize something very important and the left hand represents the globe or, or planet Earth. If you look closely at it, you can see it's um, symbolic of planet Earth. And, and then on the right-hand side, you see there's two dragons, and these two dragons are symbolizing Hiri and Otapa. And Hiri and Otapa, the Buddha, called the Lokapala, or protectors of the world. And so these two Hiri and Otapa uh, looking after, looking over, caring for the world. And, and these two here in Otapa are very particularly important concepts in Buddhist teachings and difficult to talk about, nevertheless really important. And Hiri is translated as something like a wholesome personal sense of shame or conscience. And Otapa means... Uh, something like a fear of the consequences of wrongdoing. And so the Buddha, as I say, referred to these as lokapala, protecting the world, protecting the inner and outer worlds. And, and um, so for us to understand them correctly is it's important in practice. And it is difficult, though, as I was saying, to talk about it, however, because it very easily triggers or can easily trigger a sense of unwholesome shame and uh, uh, neurotic shame and neurotic fear and self-criticism and self-loathing. And that's not, of course, what the Buddha was aiming at. These are, uh, he said, have they served the function of protecting us from disintegration? And if we don't want our inner and outer worlds to fragment into even greater chaos and disintegrate, then these, these qualities uh, need to be cultivated, need to be uh, understood and need to be cultivated. It is the case that for many people, these qualities or these psychological phenomena have been twisted or distorted and instead of feeling protected or supported. The, sense, the mere word of shame brings up a sense of lack of self-worth and, and uh, feeling obstructed and, and limited. However, that's not what's intended. And so it is really important that we apply ourselves to an accurate understanding and then uh, a uh, suitable cultivation of these these qualities. And if all we do is uh, decide that we don't want to go into that territory because it's too painful, and or we have a rational argument about why it's not relevant, we could be missing out on some very good energy. As I said, they're uh, talking about protectors, 
the inner world and the outer world, uh, when these qualities are not understood and not developed and not functioning as they potentially can, then uh, disintegration is what follows. Whether we like it or not. So perhaps beginning to address the dysfunction, these, these qualities being distorted, perhaps it can begin with with simply acknowledging the importance that the Buddha placed on hearing Otapa. To register these qualities as something praised by by our teacher, by the Buddha, and not merely believing in them, not just kind of registering them and then filing them away, but to register them and, and then look into what, what's going on there. Why is it that, that when we make a mistake and we feel bad that the mind, for some people, spirals down into this vortex of, of self-hatred? What's really going on there? Or if it's not quite so intense, it can still be negative self-view. Again, there's a saying that it's tempting perhaps to dismiss the territory because it's painful or, or confusing. However, in this case, it's something that we really do uh, need to find a way of looking into and, and getting interested in it. And not, just, not just following our conditioned views and opinions about it. And some philosophical or intellectual argument about why it's not relevant. And, saying if we do that we could be really missing out on some very good energy and so the uh, invitation is to apply ourselves to get interested and then into exercising awareness way way whereby we can perhaps step back step back from the feelings from the thoughts of, of unwholesome shame and and neurotic, compulsive fear. Step back and reflect on it. Mm. See it as a conditioned process. Mm. There's the cause, there's the effect. Mm. Some stage we've been told stories that are not aligned with reality and uh, didn't know otherwise, so we believed them, so we internalized them, so we took on this idea that somehow it's virtuous to hate ourselves for having made a mistake. Buddha's view is never by hatred is hatred conquered. Never. Never by hatred is hatred conquered. So hating ourselves and, and hating the feeling of being shamed or fear of being criticized, from the Buddha's perspective, that's not a helpful approach. So rather to step back, see if we could expand our sense of awareness and feel what we feel. So this sense of shame feels like this in the body, in the heart, in the mind. Cause and effect, of course I feel this way because the mind has been conditioned to feel this way. There's the cause, there's the effect. Like, you know, you've got that hot stove heating the room down the back there and if you can sit next to it and warm yourself by it or you can touch it. If you touch it, that's the cause for suffering. It's not the fire, it's not the problem. 
Feeling ashamed is not the problem of doing something wrong. It's the way we relate to the feeling of feeling ashamed that creates the suffering. It's clinging to it, making a self out of it. Now, just how that happened and at what stage of life that happened is that's another question. However, if we can just at this stage, at the beginning stage, reflect according to cause and effect and see there's a cause for the body-mind to feel so bad for this self-hatred, self-loathing, self-judgment to kick in. There's a cause for it. When there's a trigger, then this is what happens. And so even just that much to start off with, to see that the Buddha emphasized it and said it's something to really pay attention to, to really cultivate, and then to see if we can expand a sense of awareness and feel what we feel and reflect on the thoughts that are going, get a little, see if we can get a little space around the thoughts that are passing through our heads. See the stories that we tell ourselves and how repetitive they are. So just this much, reflecting on cause and effect and, and maybe that's already going to loosen things up just a little bit and start to question if we do get pulled into that vortex of self-loathing it can feel so overwhelming so powerful if we can just get a little bit of space around it and consider that in its essence in its essence there's something really virtuous something really wholesome there something really important there yes it's been twisted and distorted However, let's not dismiss the whole territory. So reflecting on the cause and effect nature, we were conditioned this way, we were told stories at a stage in our life when we were vulnerable and we didn't know otherwise, so we believed those stories. And So there's the cause and then there's the effect. It's just a process that happens. Also what helps, and what can potentially help, also what can potentially help, is intentional positivity. So if we've been conditioned to be excessively self-critical, then merely observing these tendencies of heart and mind might not be enough. And so generating intentional positivity can support us, can buoy us up, so to speak. Metaphorically speaking, it's like generating light. Okay, so there's, for instance, something like compassion. Wishing beings be free from suffering. Wishing ourselves be free from suffering. Now, this is an artificial form of compassion. It's not selfless, spontaneous compassion. However, this approximation of this force of compassion can help mitigate some of the pain of self-loathing, of unwholesome guilt and neurotic fear. Generating intentional positivity, dwelling on the thought of may beings be free from suffering and to use it as a, to engage it as a meditation practice. So for instance, if you decide to experiment with this, then you can bring to your own attention uh, an awareness of suffering in your own life, whether it's something that you're experiencing in the moment or something you can remember from the past where, where life hurt, uh, whether it's through a sense of 
lost friendship or sense of betrayal or abandonment or sadness or disappointment or fear, anxiety, bringing it to heart and mind and, and registering the feeling, registering the feeling, this is suffering, this is life when it feels like a struggle, it feels like this. Not rushing up, you know, I'm going to develop compassion and so we're thinking, may all beings be free from suffering, may all beings be free from suffering. That, that can be like, you know, just instead of eating the muesli, it's like eating the wrapper around the muesli. You know, of course, the wrapper's got a point, but you know, what you really want to be eating is the muesli. You know. Compassion is not just an idea of may all beings be free from suffering. You know, first, we need to start with seeing if we can activate the feeling of wishing beings be free from suffering. So in our own case, feeling our suffering, feeling the pain of life, and life can be really painful at times. Feeling it, even if it's times that, you know, brought tears to the eyes, this life is so disappointing at times. And, and then, very gently, imagining somebody you know that you really care about, likewise, having such similar sort of suffering. Obviously not wishing it on them, but feeling that they too might have experienced such suffering. And, and wishing that they don't have to feel such suffering. Feeling that impulse, that inclination in the heart. May they be free from suffering. May that person not have to experience suffering. May they be free from suffering. So now we've got the feeling of wishing going and hopefully not collapsed into identification with that feeling, but a spacious, open attention to the feeling in the body and the heart and the chest. May they be free from suffering. And then the thought, may they be free from suffering. So then that becomes our meditation practice. And working with that towards people that we care about, people we feel neutral about, following the classic formula. People maybe eventually somebody really actually dislike, but visualizing that person also having tears rolling down their cheek and the sense of the pain of life and letting your heart give rise to that, wishing, may they be free from suffering. And then bring it back around to yourself. May I be free from suffering. May I be free from suffering. Maybe it's the first time you've really said it and thought it and meant it. To really wish yourself well. To really wish yourself well. To speak it to your heart directly. May I be free from suffering. From this suffering. From this ordeal. From this agony. May I be free from But not getting pulled down into that energy of self-loathing or negativity. Staying in that buoyed up, well-wishing mode of may I be free from suffering. And in so doing, as I was saying, generating a positive force that can help help us maintain mindfulness when we're being assailed by the negativity of like self-loathing or fear of being condemned or criticized or cast into hell for eternity if that's the story that we were told. So the remembering that the, the light has the power to overcome darkness. It doesn't matter how, how long a room has been dark or how dark a room is. When you shine a light in it, darkness has no power. And so 
bringing this suggestion, this image to heart and mind if we're feeling assailed by, by negativity and with the aspiration, with the interest in coming to appreciate what the Buddha was really talking about when he was saying that you know, this hiri and otapa, you know, a wholesome sense of shame and a, and a wholesome fear of wrongdoing, fear of being judged for, for wrongdoing. These have the potential to protect us and support us you know, and protect and support our world harmony and concord in the outer world. There's a Dhammapada verse or verses 58 and 59 which says that just as a sweet-smelling and beautiful lotus can grow from a heap of discarded waste, so the radiance of a true disciple of the Buddha outshines dark shadows cast by unawareness. Just as a sweet-smelling and beautiful lotus can grow from a heap of discarded waste, so the radiance of a true disciple of the Buddha outshines dark shadows cast by unawareness. So this evening, it's a, it's a great pleasure to, to witness Ben making this public commitment to live under the Anagarika training for a year. I imagine he's carrying with him his, his own pile of discarded waste. What is wonderful is that he wants to transform that part of discarded waste into something that's truly beneficial. I get the impression from um, talking with him that he's interested um, in taking responsibility for his pile of discarded waste. It's very easy to be interested in blaming and projecting and distracting ourselves when we're suffering from the consequences of our pile of discarded waste we can easily distract ourselves or projecting and blaming it's very easy to blame I'm, I'm personally very familiar with my own experience of spending time uh, blaming other people for my suffering whether it was my parents or you know, other influences in my life and not really, not really registering that this is my responsibility. This, this anger that I'm generating right now is mine. This is my heart energy. And, and this is what I'm responsible for this, this ill will. This, this is my heart energy. I'm actively generating this state. And to be able to turn around and face it takes work, that's work. It's very easy to be distracted. It's very easy to project and blame, you know, blame the government and blame your astrological configuration or blame your ancestors and blame something. That's, that's easy. However, to make the gesture that Ben is making this evening to stop and turn around and take responsibility for it, that's great. And making this commitment in the context of spiritual community is, as you would expect me to say, a very smart move. Spiritual community has the potential to support us in cultivating those potentials that we have to do this work. Even if we get the impression that this work is worthwhile, to really be able to do it in a sustained way is very challenging. However, and living in spiritual community, surrounded by people who share 
a similar aspiration is a great potential advantage and the strength and the support that we can get from harmonious cooperative spiritual community can nourish us in our efforts can energize us in our efforts to develop our faculties our spiritual faculties faith energy mindfulness collectiveness discernment sadha virya sati samadhi panya these potentials that we have how well developed are they and if they're not developed can we do the work can we really do the work or do we just settle for the way things appear on the surface again it's it's very easy just to, to be fooled by the way things appear on the surface. And like you look at the you look at an ocean and you know, the ocean is tumultuous and you think that's the whole ocean. However, are we aware that you know deeper down in the ocean it's it's very still. Very still and very quiet. On the surface it looks one way. On a deeper dimension, same ocean, deeper dimension it's a totally different matter altogether. Mm. Or you look at the world, you can look at the world and see all the disruption, all the dishonesty, all the game playing, all the deceit, all, all the foolishness, all the nonsense and the manipulation. Think how sad. Of course, yeah, that's sad. However, is that really the story of the world? Mm. There's lots of intelligence, lots of really wholesome aspiration in this world people trying really hard to ask real questions and discover real answers that's that's a different dimension if we just watch the news and and flick through our favorite app on our smartphone you can get a, a very negative impression of the world and feel very disheartened and forget that there are deeper dimensions and likewise of course also the heart mind and we all know in our own condition that uh, on the surface our mind can be confused our heart can be despairing and if we don't have our spiritual faculties functioning we don't have some established faith and energy and mindfulness collectiveness discernment then we easily settle for the way the heart mind appears to be I'm a mess. I'm a complete mess. I'm a hopeless case. Well, indeed, it might look like that. The world looks hopeless. That doesn't mean to say it is hopeless. I often reflect on you know, what was happening just before antibiotics were discovered. Nobody knew antibiotics were going to be discovered, and then suddenly antibiotics were discovered. And it was a complete game changer. We don't know what's about to be discovered or what's about to manifest. And likewise, in our own case, even when the heart-mind can be very disturbed and, and challenging, let's remember the spiritual faculties, let's, in the spiritual community, let's all support each other in drilling down beyond the way things merely appear to be on the surface and remembering there's other potentials that are not necessarily immediately obvious. So a true disciple of the Buddha applies themselves to developing the spiritual faculties so, so they're not merely fooled by the way things appear to be. The distress that we feel at any time, yes, it can, life can feel like this, it can feel really 
distressing, can feel really difficult. Is it really like that? Is it ultimate? Do we have to believe in it? Or is there a possibility that there's another way of approaching this distress or sadness when we feel sad or we feel threatened? Yes, feeling threatened is like this, but do we have to collapse into the vortex of, of feeling threatened? Or is there a possibility of exercising our spiritual potential to expand the sense of awareness and feel a little space around it? Yes, it feels like this right now. doesn't mean to say it's always going to be like this. For those who are committed to being disciples of the Buddha, Hopefully they discover the possibility of learning what we need to learn from the mistakes that we make. We all make mistakes. It's just because when we make mistakes it can feel terrible. It can feel really terrible. But that doesn't mean to say we're terrible. It's a feeling. It feels like this right now. It doesn't mean to say that it's ultimate. So using the opportunities we have in this training to develop our faculties and then as the conditioned perceptions change, maybe we stop condemning ourselves, stop judging ourselves. And some of these conditioned tendencies that we grew up with and have suffered from change, change dramatically. Maybe we find that in places where previously we felt we were weak, that we can find strength. Maybe neurotic guilt can turn into a wholesome sense of remorse for the mistakes we've made in life. We can't really learn, we can't really heal if we can't allow ourselves to simply feel remorse for our wrongdoing. Remorse is it's like a form of pain that, you know, if you stub your toe and it hurts, that pain is a message saying, pay attention here. If you don't feel pain when you stub your toe, then there's a lot risk you'll get infected. You might even lose your foot. You'll get seriously ill. The pain is a, a message saying, pay attention here. Likewise, when we get lost and we make mistakes and caught up in wrongdoing, remorse is a form of heart pain that says, pay attention here. There was heedlessness. And this needs religion. But this is not, this is not something to cling to and then turn into self-judgment and, and self-loathing. This is work to transform the pile of discarded waste into something truly beneficial. However, this work is difficult and it takes commitment. And if we don't commit to it, then there's not much chance that we really, really will learn. And like learning a foreign language, if you look up a dictionary or you know, to translate a word or two once or twice a week, there's not much chance you're going to learn to be able to really communicate in a foreign language. If you want to communicate in a foreign language, you really have to apply yourself to that language. Study the language, repeat it over and over again and until it's been internalized and then maybe you can communicate. Likewise with this training, it takes commitment. And so this evening, Witnessing Ben making this commitment to this training is, a, is a, a beautiful thing in the midst of a world that is not always beautiful. And I'm sure that I speak on behalf of the whole community here and wishing him well. And may his pile of discarded waste grow many lotuses. Thank you for your attention.